1954, researcher Edward Simmons observed in the journal Finance that, quote, although not a negligible fraction of Federal Reserve credit, government securities acquired under repurchase agreement attracted little attention in discussions of central bank policy. Securities acquired under repurchase agreement. What we know of today is repo. Now, that was weird to Mr. Simmons or anybody who had an interest in the monetary affairs of the U.S. dollar system at the time, because back then, the Federal Reserve was practically the entire repo market. And it had been from the very first days of repo. In fact, the reason we call it repurchase agreement is because the Federal Reserve wanted to bend the rules and to cheat. Imagine that, right? Back in World War I, or really before World War I, World War I began, there was an interest from the federal government in having the banking system finance to build up to the U.S. involvement in that conflict, the, the issuance and flotation of liberty bonds. But the Federal Reserve Act specifically prevented, prohibited, the Federal Reserve from financing speculative activities, including government, government payments for war. So the Federal Reserve came up with this workaround or bypass, and it wasn't even using 13.3. What they said was, because the Federal Reserve was required to fund its own activities, not be a burden upon the taxpayer, it was therefore required to own earning assets. So it could buy and sell securities if only to fund its own activities. But that opened the door to buying and selling securities for perhaps other purposes, including these temporary repurchase and resale agreements where the government, the Federal Reserve, would buy bonds directly from the banking system only to resell them back to the, to the banking system at a later date. In other words, to create a collateralized short-term funding transaction, except not using that language, that vernacular, not making it seem like the Fed is doing something else. In fact, in the fourth annual report for the for the Federal Reserve Branch in New York for the year covering the year 1918 when this repurchase activity was at its height the the annual report says while the Federal Reserve Bank could not discount directly for non-member banks it has freely purchased from them whenever necessary at the same rate at which it was discounting for its member banks certificates of indebtedness with an agreement on their part to repurchase within 15 days and under authority of the Federal Reserve Board has offered to rediscount their paper when secured by government obligations with endorsement of a member bank. So the Fed was financing the Liberty Bond sales in this repo or repurchase agreement, including the use of, as it said, certificates of indebtedness. What are certificates of indebtedness? Well, they were a primitive form of treasury bill, except that they paid a coupon rate. Short-term government obligations holding preference in a repurchase agreement market. Where have we heard that before? Well, we heard it again just today because the government sold four-week and eight-week treasury bills. The four-week treasury bill auction had a high yield of 4.1%. So that's the highest yield that the government had to pay for these four-week instruments. And you'll note that the current RRP from the Federal Reserve, which is supposed to set a floor under all of these money market rates, is 4.3%. So every, everybody who bought four-week treasury bills today 
was saying that I don't care about getting 4.3%, I'd rather have 4.1%. But it wasn't 4.1% because the median at the auction was 4.0. And the low yield, where 5% of the auction took place, was 3875, substantially below the RRP. So demand for not certificates of indebtedness, but their modern predecessor is through the roof. But why? What is going on here? In a recent video, I talked about this from the perspective of supply. The Treasury, Treasury Department is restricting supply, and that's one angle. We've also talked about things like collateral for collateral swaps, and in that, in that specific case, Italian bond spreads, which doesn't, I mean, that seems counterintuitive too. What does Italian government bond debted, debts and, and denominated in euros have to do with U.S. Treasury and Treasury bill demand? Well, there's a whole process that goes involved, that gets involved there. Today, I want to specifically focus on another element behind this collateral shortage, this massive collateral squeeze that is still ongoing. And that is risk aversion, the repudiation of other forms of collateral that leaves the repo market system, the repo system, really the backbone of, of global dollars throughout the world, using fewer and fewer other alternative forms of collateral, meaning that demand for the best form of collateral, which is treasury bills, goes through the roof. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're interested, we have background detailed information, case studies, history, uh, diagrams available for memberships, members, eurodollar.university. We also do research subscriptions where we go into the nitty gritty details. What are curves telling us? What is collateral? What are, what are all of these things that we're talking about here on YouTube? There's a deep dive analysis subscription as well as a daily briefing which gets you up to date every day on the macro and money events that we believe are going to impact you the most, or maybe that are most interesting long run as well as short run. All the information available, eurodollar.university. So even we begin with treasury bills, but it's not just treasury bills. You look across the entire repo market right now today, and the sulfur rate, which is the mostly repo transaction rate, is right at 430, which again is the same as RRP, but the broad general collateral rate, collateral rate, say that fast, is 427. That's three basis points less than RRP, which suggests a significant chunk of the general collateral repo market is, is going off at rates less than, the, than cash lenders could get at uh, nothing more than the Fed's reverse repo window. And this is true of the, the tripartite G, so GC repo rate too, which is at 427. All of these low rates tell us that cash lenders are willing to accept lower and lower returns for specific reasons. Now in GC repo, it's because they can't find enough borrowers with acceptable collateral. There's more cash for the narrowing list of borrowers who have treasuries. Treasuries are the most acceptable, most negotiable form of collateral. And in treasury bills, that's the other side of it. And we'll get into what we want to get into today is why that's the case. What might be going on across the repo market that is forcing more and more and more people, more and more repo party counterparties into just U.S. Treasury bills or some of the on the run Treasury securities to notes and bonds, those types of things. 
Now, the repo market has been expanding. So the Federal Reserve was responsible for maybe the first third of repo. So from World War One, then repo kind of died out in the 1930s for pretty obvious reasons. There wasn't much going on during that time. Then sort of restarted again, World War II, into the 1940s and 1950s. But when it really took off was in the 1970s. The 1970s, the advent of money market funds, wholesale transactions, and repo was right at the center of it. And that also meant fungibility in collateral. In fact, think about it from the perspective of what we've been talking about, repurchase agreement. Is it actually where you sell where you sell a bond and agree to buy it back, or is it nothing more than a collateralized loan? For decades, there was a lot of gray area, including in case law. What happens in bankruptcy? Do we treat this as a sale? The IRS got involved throughout history, suing people because they were recording it as recording these transactions as collateralized loans when the IRS said, no, this is this is actually a purchase and sale. Give us some capital gains taxes. So it wasn't until really the 1980s that repo began to be standardized, which led us into the repo that we recognize today, which is very, very collateral sensitive because it is so darn fungible. Now, there are different forms of repo. Most repo, what I believe is most repo, certain uh, some academic studies that have come out recently have suggested that more repo is now tri-party or on exchange than off. I don't believe that. I don't think they're capturing the, the, the full scope of what's going on in these funding markets, which hardly unusual. But there's something called bilateral bespoke, which is really what most repo is, what I believe most repo is, where a cash lender and a, and a, and a, um, a cash borrower who has collateral, the right collateral or accepted collateral get together. Nobody really knows what's going on, except if, if there's a broker, a third-party broker, which is arranges that transaction. Basically, outside of those three parties, you wouldn't really know that there's a repo transaction at all. Now, there's also something called tri-party repo. Now, tri-party repo actually played a central role in the global monetary crisis of 2007 and 2008, which was, if you had to put a couple words on what the 2008 crisis was, those two words would be collateral shortage. And those two words, the collateral shortage, would have been uttered by someone at JP Morgan. And I've talked about this in previous videos, and I'll probably get back to this again. Long story short, JP Morgan as tri-party repo custodian saw that collateral systems were breaking down. The valuation of collateral was leading to all sorts of systemic breakdowns, which if JP Morgan wasn't careful, would leave them on the hook for a tremendous amount, which they didn't want to be on the hook for and therefore started initiating all these collateral calls against companies like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, AIG, those type of names. What is tri-party repo? Well, as I said, there are, there are people who have cash, excess cash that they want to invest, and those who have access to securities. And this goes back to the early days of repo in, in beginning anyway. Not, forget the Federal Reserve, but repo itself. We have securities firms who have, whose whole job is to essentially buy securities from the government, from whatever GSE, from companies that are, that are interested in floating bonds. These securities dealers buy those in the primary market, hold them in their, on their balance sheet, and then sell them off to the secondary, in the secondary market to the rest of the public. Now, if you don't have some sort of, of external funding mechanism, this is both cumbersome and expensive. 
So to have a funding mechanism that allows companies, these dealers to warehouse securities as they're buying them in the primary market and waiting to sell them to customers, it is an incredible invention, innovation of monetary efficiency. Where tri-party repo comes in is that it has this clearing agent, which is either JP Morgan or Bank of New York Mellon, although JP Morgan has said, we don't want to do this anymore, really leaving us with Bank of New York Mellon. You have these clearing banks who, who get involved, who take custody of securities, demand custody, they, they value the securities, and they make sure that margin is applied where necessary, matching between uh, where, where cash lenders and securities lenders get together and have this marketplace, essentially. So the clearing banks have information and insight into the repo market that otherwise we don't have because they're observing all the transactions that take place within their clearing book. Now, again, they're not brokers. They're not participating. They're, source, they're essentially just bookkeepers here, referees in certain circumstances where the valuation of securities changes and demanding, of course, a margin call. What happened to Lehman Brothers, AIG, and Bear Stearns was J.P. Morgan said, we need more collateral or I'm kicking you off of my tri-party repo platform, which to any of those firms would have been and was essentially a death sentence. So over the last decade, somewhat realizing that repo was kind of important, Federal Reserve officials decided to finally start collecting some information on at least tri-party repo. They've, they've made some concerted effort in bilateral bespoke too, but not really making much progress there. So we have information from tri-party repo. And among the information we have is the gross volume. We have different types of collateral that have been pledged and used in, tri in these tri-party repo transactions. And what you see far as gross volume goes is that volume spiked in March of 2021, which makes a lot of sense given what was going on. Not QE, not the level of bank reserves, but the sudden circulation of funds in response to the global supply shock. And wouldn't you know it that most of the collateral, in fact, the vast majority of collateral that was used in this spike of repo, tri-party repo in 2021, U.S. Treasuries. But it wasn't only U.S. Treasuries because the tri-party repo data also gives us some general types of information that we can kind of, we can unpack to, to make some other judgments about what's going on. What they also tell us is not just the volume of repo, but also the number of repo transactions and the number of observations. So the number of repo transactions is simply how many individual transactions take place in a given month on the repo tri-party platform. The number of observations goes to how many different forms of collateral are pledged in individual repo transactions. So we're, we're conditioned to think, among the few who actually think about these things, we're kind of conditioned to believe these are just one for one. I put up a, a hundred, I, I borrow a hundred million dollars worth of cash. I put up a hundred million dollars worth of treasuries. It's one repo transaction and one observation. One repo transaction, one observation for the one form of collateral. And the truth is, I might be borrowing a hundred million dollars on the tri-party repo platform, but putting up say $90 million in treasuries and of the remaining 10 million, it might be some CLOs, NBS, and maybe some equities too. We don't know. In that example, we would have one repo transaction, but four observations. So when we look at the number of repo observations and the number of repo transactions and put them together, 
it gets us a sense, it gives us a sense of how much additional collateral might be used, understanding the baseline collateral, the bulk of collateral is always going to be U.S. Treasury. And what you see is, quite predictably, during periods of reflation or risk-taking, the number of observations per repo transaction does expand. And then during these periods of collateral squeezes, usually the number of observation per repo transaction stops expanding and might actually contract a little bit. In fact, some of the worst post-crisis collateral squeezes that we've seen are when the number of, repo, number of observations per repo goes down a little bit. So here's the big point. Here's the big payoff here. From April of 2022, this year, so there was initial spike in number of, obs number of observation per repo in March and April, which suggests desperate counterparties through all sorts of collateral into the system just to be able to borrow. But ever since April, and we've been talking about this multiple times, April, May, and particularly June in the last half of the year, major collateral problems. And what does the tri-party repo data show us? Big drop big drop in the number of observations per repo. So not only do we have big dollar volume or big dollar value per repo because there's the when the when the volume went up in 2021, the number of repo transactions didn't really change all that much, which meant per repo transaction, it's much bigger dollar volume. And per repo transaction, the number of observations has dropped considerably, which means big dollar volume requiring fewer forms of collateral or not required, accepting fewer forms of collateral, requiring cash borrowers to have that narrowed list, which leads us to U.S. Treasury. So the tri-party repo data really does confirm a level of risk aversion in tri-party repo, which we can reasonably assume extends beyond the boundaries of tri-party into bilateral bespoke, where cash lenders are only accepting on the most reasonable terms, just U.S. Treasuries. They're looking at other forms of collateral and saying, nah, I'd rather not. And of course, that leads us into the big question, why? Why would cash lenders only want to lend on specific, safe, liquid forms of U.S. dollar collateral? The question kind of answers itself. And it isn't the Federal Reserve engineering some soft landing in the United States or around the rest of the global economy. Even the repo market is saying something that we'd only want safe and liquid collateral just to be protected against some measure of risk. And that risk isn't inflation. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, a huge thank you to the hundreds and hundreds of Eurodollar University members that we've gotten, as well as the hundreds and hundreds of research, research subscribers. If you're interested in any of those, information available at eurodollar.university. Until next time, take care.